millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. The Globe and Mail is an absolute fixture of the Canadian media landscape. One would be hard-pressed to find a single Canadian who would not know what the Globe and Mail is, or could not name it if asked to name three Canadian newspapers. Yet, so few Canadians know the man who founded it. This man was a figure of Gatsby-esque proportions a media mogul, a sports enthusiast, a wealthy and connected Toronto elite who had immense influence both over the Canadian cultural landscape but also the Canadian political landscape. Yet, it was a man who harbored a dark secret, a secret that eventually killed him. This is Big Man Fear Me, The Life and Times of George McCullough. The recommended book for today is titled Big Men Fear Me by author Mark Bory. And in fact, we brought Mark on to chat about this fascinating story. Mark wrote as a freelance correspondent for the Global Mail from 1978 to 1989 and for the Toronto Star from 1989 to 2004. He was a member of the Parliamentary Press Gallery from 1994 to 2018. Mark taught media history and journalism at Concordia University, history at Carleton and Canadian Studies at the University of Ottawa. Mark is the author of 13 books, the most recent being Big Men Fear Me. But his 2019 book, Bushrunner, The Adventures of Pierre Radisson, was a Canadian bestseller and winner of the RBC Charles Taylor Prize for Literary Excellence. Mark has also won several major media awards, including a National Magazine Award, and has been nominated for many others. He has also written extensively on topics for both history and law. We begin our conversation by asking Mark about George McCullough's early years. Born in 1905 in, in the sort of post-frontier um, world, um, sort of very early small town Ontario. So he's he's born at a time when um, it's pre-electrification. It's uh, he's in a, an area that's predominantly rural. He's in southwestern Ontario, actually the town of London, Ontario, which okay. is a county seat and a regional um, sort of a regional community. Still very much a small industrial city, uh, basically in the middle of nowhere, halfway between Toronto and Detroit. And um, and so it's very much 
um, a community of its own, but it's also a very small place where um, small enough that when his father is crossing the local businesses by by being a, a labor activist, it's pretty easy for him to be blacklisted and kept from getting a, a decent job in the place. And and you mentioned his father. So does he he enter? So he, he comes from a working class family. Yeah, his father, um, his father and mother were from from Northern Ireland. They were Irish Protestants, um, kind of what we think of as Scots Irish. And the uh, father was um, was basically a cabinet maker, but bounced around from job to job because he was of, of all things and it's very ironic to the story that his father was a bit of a labor activist and his mother was basically a housewife he was the, the only boy and there were a few sisters and um he was very much uh of a sort of person raised on i think you know uh, boys of that era were you know just basically let loose and um and feral his mother was a saint of course all mothers were saints back then mackenzie king's mother was a saint and you know sainted mothers are everywhere but um usually the fathers are saints too but like mackenzie king's father um george mccullough's father is really not a part of the story too much and like i said he only mentions his father once in his entire life and all the things i ever saw that he wrote and it just he just mentions fishing with him um, on the Thames River, the London Ontario Thames River, not the real one, and uh, and that there's uh, no sort of guiding star, parental hand. There's no uh, inspiration from from the father to to do anything. Um, and and he uh, gets into he runs obviously a few odd jobs, but obviously the, his his big sort of his future is in newspaper media, and he kind of. He has quite an early start with newspapers. So I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through how he ends up, you know, selling newspapers in the first place. Well, he, he left school in grade nine when his high school burned out. So he got a job in a bank, which I guess you could do in, uh, in 19, uh, that would be 1919 or so. When he was 16, he decided to be a newspaper reporter. So he got on a train, he hopped up to Toronto, went to see the owner of the Globe and uh, some of the editors. We took a look at this this kid and said, you know, maybe there's something there, but not at 16. And they gave him a free pass to the Toronto exhibition, the Canadian National Exhibition. And then they put him to work selling subscriptions, which is, you know, just a nothing job. At least it was supposed to be a nothing job, uh, especially down in the bottom of Ontario, in, outside of town. In, that part of Ontario is a snow belt in the winter. It's tons and tons of snow. And in the summer... It is literally hotter than hell. I, I've spent a couple summers down there in my life, and um, I don't really wish that on anybody to, to work outside. And, and so this kid um, went from farm to farm, and these farms were not exactly cheek to jowl, hustling newspaper subscriptions, and was the best salesman they had within months. And not only that, but he developed it at what we could see as a data scraping operation, which was something called the Child Safety League. Which uh, which he used to to basically gather information about potential Globe subscri subscribers. Kids would clip out a coupon from the paper and send us in with their name and address and stuff. And um, this idea was so good that it was used all over North America. And he was, I think, seventeen or eighteen when he came up with that. So he he was doing very very well um, for several years. And then he got a job on the paper working for the financial section. He really wanted to be a sports writer. Guy, guy was big, 
uh, into sports, uh, knew sports pretty well, um, ended up as a financial writer, but it didn't take him very long to get fired. And he was fired in 1929, uh, just as the depression was starting to bite. So he was 24. So he'd already had this career, well, the banking career and the sales career and the writing career. And it was seemed to be over when he was 24, but then he decided to go to Bay Street because, hey, if in 1929, what else are you going to do but get into selling stocks, right? And he was good at that too. And within uh, within four years, he had 30 people working for him. He was still less than 30 years old. Um, yeah, like 30 people working for him, uh, a firm with offices in Toronto and, and, and uh, Hamilton, selling gold stocks to people who, who had some hope of being part of the, the the big you know gold mining boom of Ontario most of them end up just losing all their money and um, so that there he was and you know poised in his in early 30s to do something and when he got fired from the globe he said next time I come back into this place I'll own it and he did and that was in uh, 1930 oh my god I'm getting rusty now 35 yeah 35 he, he bought the globe and he um he walked in and he basically humiliated uh the owner of of, of the paper jack again named jaffrey um very publicly described that and became this darling of the establishment in some ways owning this incredibly powerful paper he was also extremely intertwined with Premier Mitch Hepburn. I mean, we're really talking about a premier who should have gone to prison, but uh, but instead ends up in the history books. And um, and and McCullough basically handles all of his money, all of his stocks, all of his his uh, McCullough uses insider knowledge to insider trade on behalf of the premier, so that not only is McCullough owning the globe, but he's calling the shots in the provincial government. And then within a few months, he bought the Mail and Empire, which was the, a conservative paper. And at this time, McCullough was a liberal. And he hammered them together to make the GM, the George McCullough, the Global Mail. It's like Leonardo DiCaprio in that, in that movie where he gets really wealthy. And then there's almost like an Elon Musk buying Twitter element to this when he goes back oh, yeah. to the Globe. Um, and then he finally combines it. Now, maybe just for our listeners, what type, just the Globe itself, what type of paper was it at the time? The Globe was like a lot of Canadian newspapers now. It was trading on its name. It was a bit of a shadow of what it had been in the in the 1800s when um, when George Brown owned it. And uh, it, had been, it had passed through different hands after that. Uh, it was sort of beaten up and, and rather weathered by the time McCullough got its ha his hands on it, but but it's, it was still full of potential. It was the I'd say it was the second or third most important paper in English Canada. The first is by far the Montreal Star uh, was the, the, by far the best paper in Canada at the time, and um, the Globe might have been second. The Mail and Empire was probably a better paper than the Globe. Uh, we don't think of that paper anymore because people you know talk about the globe as if it is a continuation of of, of a paper that started in the 1850s but it's not and um and the mail and empire is really really the core of of what of what the globe and mail is now but still going into the stock market in the depression going into newspapers in the depression is not just flat out crazy yeah and yet he does it and he operates in a a different world 
um, be, partly I think out of ignorance. He just doesn't know, uh, you know, enough history to know um, what he doesn't know, and and so he he does these sort of reckless moves, but he he's able to finance these because he has a buddy who a humongous gold mine in Ontario. And he's ready to backstop him. And I think the capitalization that was involved is extremely important to the creation of those two newspapers. Um, the Charles Star, which is the, the, the big competitor at the time, had been financed by reinvestment of profits over and over. And so basically a very tight-fisted owner, Joseph Atkinson, who just keeps plowing the profits back into building the paper. And in this case, it was a it was just basically a you know sort of newspaper equivalent of a of a 14-year-old Chevy. Then McCullough bought and used the money from his friend um, Wright, really Wright, to you know to to build a new building that was just gorgeous, to buy an airplane, to hire the best staff, to buy the best features from American syndicates, uh, to get other you know, newsboys out hustling the paper, to to, to really start breaking stories, uh, building uh, political coverage that's that for the time was was quite good. And uh, and and having this paper where they could get reporters to any story anywhere simply by taking them to the airport and putting them on the globe's private plane, and flying them uh, places. It's uh, it is a Gatsby level of um, of journalism. We, I started journalism in, in, in like the in 1978. I had my first newspaper job. I never saw anything like it. And I worked for the Globe and Mail. And uh, it was uh, we weren't exactly flying around in private airplanes. We did right. have. Uh, cab chits to get around, but but we weren't flying around in, in beautiful um, airplanes and staying in in great places and and eating from uh, a, a cafeteria a dining room in the in the Globe and Mail where um, where the publisher would come and and, and join us for a steak. Um, was the publisher living in a in an apartment in the same building with uh, you know with gold fixtures and and mosaics and right uh, i mean this is just a sort of art deco crazy um, that's that, that that's uh, so fascinating i mean it's like it it is it does like you said gatsby's a great term which i i think of when i think of the story because it's so decadent it's so over the top and and my assumption is then that canada prior to and and it sounds like since has never seen this sort of decadent journalism or this sort of decadent newspaper mogul uh, it, like this is, he's a one of a kind, I would ar argue then in this story. I, yeah, I'd say there were people who knew him, who tried to be him, um, but they never, they never pulled it off. Uh, I, I think that one person who might've come close with John Bassett, who owned the Toronto Telegram after McCullough died, which was a paper McCullough ended up owning. Uh, so Bassett bought it from from the heirs of McCullough in the in the early fifties, and it, and Bassett also came out with the first TV station in Toronto. Uh, I I can't imagine what would have happened if television and George McCullough had collided. Um, it's interesting because uh, not only does he start forming this media empire, but he also begins to get heavily involved in sports. I found that was kind of fascinating. Maybe you could talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, I don't know what time zone he was on, but for some reason his days were like forty hours long because he was able to to run the newspaper, you know, going during the day. Also had a horse and horse uh, racing uh, business, and it really was a business. Plus, he owned a piece of the Toronto Maple Leaf hockey team, and he went to a lot of their games, and he had damn good seats. And he owned a chunk of the Toronto Argonauts football club, 
um, and and pieces of I think he might have owned a piece of the old Triple A Toronto Maple Leafs baseball team. Um, he's certainly there quite a bit. He denied owning it outright, but I I'm pretty sure he had a chunk of it just because that's the sort of thing he would do. He actually got into fights uh, behind the bench with 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 hockey players from from out of town. I mean, he was yeah. He was a big man, a big, a very handsome man, a very physically uh, imposing man. You wouldn't want to get in a fight with this guy. Plus, very physically active. Um, he had sort of a quasi farm estate thing uh, um, on the edge of Toronto. It's actually sort of buried in Toronto now, and, um, and it's a it's a hernia clinic of all things. But, um, but yeah, you you wouldn't want to get in a fight with the guy. And um, he's always out like fishing and hunting and that sort of stuff. Um, but you know, all of the time he's doing this, he's he's got this huge secret, and he cannot um, he cannot share it. And so when he's doing all the sports and everything, and everybody's thinking he's sort of this hail fellow well met guy, and a lot of people think that he also is a good drinking buddy, he's not drinking. He's fighting um, a serious mental illness that that dogs him. Oh gosh, from his from his twenties until his death, um, I think it has a hellish effect on his family. Uh, I don't think his marriage was much to write home about, it, and his wife, you know, basically stuck around because I don't think she saw other choices. Um, and it uh, I, it was extremely painful for him in any kind of public way that he was willing to let people think he was an alcoholic uh, to explain the times when he's manic or the times when he just basically isn't around. Oh, interesting. So you and, you actually uh, don't think he was necessarily an alcoholic, but more using alcohol to cover his bi- bipolarity, his bipolar disorder. Yeah. yeah, because he he says, I mean, there are times when people um, accuse him of being a drunk, and he says, I, I don't drink. Um, when he is manic, he's also trying to convince people to give up drinking. Um, I, I think that comes up several times in, in, in his life where he... Um, becomes very anti-booze. I think he did drink in his 20s to self-medicate for the bipolar disorder. But then when he had money, he found this other way. And this other way is this Dr. Kennedy in New York. And Dr. Kennedy, it's a real doctor, feel good. Dr. Kennedy uh, doesn't believe in talking about your mom, uh, doesn't believe in antidepressant pills. I don't think there were any anyway. he believes that if you have a problem, it's a, it's an electrical chemical problem, and you hook the guy up to the um, to the car battery and the and the um, the clamps, and off you go. And and so what McCullough was doing was, and this guy was this guy is not just some back alley freak. He the, he is sort of a leader of a school of of psychiatric thought and. Um, and is the head of an institute in New York and 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 has all kinds of articles, a lot of academic credibility around him at the time. Certainly his his ideas have been um, talked about and, and somewhat debunked since then. But 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 the convenience for McCullough is that he doesn't have to go down there and, and go through a lot of psychoanalysis or risk going through psychoanalysis in Toronto. He goes to New York, he has a uh, an, uh, an apartment rented. Uh, he goes in, he gets the um, ECT, electroconvulsive treatment or shock treatment, whatever you want to call it, um, and goes back to Toronto within days. It's uh, it's completely bizarre uh, how he deals with this with this disorder. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And this is a, like a lifelong kind of thing he does with this doctor, correct? Like for for most, he like extensive well, uh, periods of treatment, right? It's so it's so uh, pivotal to his life that when the doctor dies, he kills himself, um, and that that death closed the door to psychiatric treatment. There, there was nobody that I can find who took up Kennedy's treatment system and who who McCullough could be um, just basically have his file given to. You know, so McCullough was dead very soon afterwards. Um, it, it's fascinating too because. You mentioned earlier on that McCullough was, in his early days, a liberal. Yet his political views and for, seems like and leanings seem to shape or change quite dramatically and quite controversially over the course of his life. Well, you have to sort of take him from the point of view of somebody who's um, who has no education, no formal education to speak of, uh, and who's self-educated in, in the varying bits of spare time that he has, but probably got most of his political views from just talking to people. And um, so he starts off as, as, as a, as a large a liberal, which in you know Toronto in, in the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s is, is basically a conservative person with, Who's willing to say give some money to the Catholic school system, and you know the the the, 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 the sort of political markers of that period are completely different from ours now. This man is not a socialist; he's not a believer in in you know sort of great public works as a way of dealing with the depression or anything like that. Um, his 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 political views uh, are sort of his undoing in this in the sense because they're always so naive, and while he likes to manipulate. The political environment he doesn't have um and, and raise questions he doesn't have answers so so he gets into a he starts a populist movement when he's in his oh gosh maybe about 30 he was 34 when he started this, this populist movement that i think he hoped would would project him into some sort of political power but the problem was that he was able to finance this himself. He was able to buy national airtime on the CBC, which you could do back then, hours at a time, or put together and or put together networks of local radio stations and do these, like I said, hour-long speeches, one a week, and and have all kinds of people clipping coupons like they did for the Child Safety League and sending them to to Ottawa to, to the you know to the House of Commons demanding that that politicians work together to solve the problems of the depression, but working together, how that's the, that's the question that he, that he's able to answer. He never is able to flesh out um, any kind of structure that he, that he puts together uh, and offers as, as political sol solutions. Um, he, he doesn't embrace fascism. He doesn't, if he had, he he would have at least been able to offer solutions of a sort, um, and he doesn't certainly doesn't embrace any sort of Marxist uh, 
positions, but he also ignores Franklin Roosevelt's positions on to give working people the ability to to fuel a capitalist economy, which is basically what Roosevelt was doing during the New Deal. So he doesn't he doesn't get a handle on any of that. So so that's where he falls down a lot politically, and and why he he goes nowhere politically. A lot of people thought, you know, here here we have a guy who can speak, which he could. Um, he was he was quite a good speaker. He he was attractive. People liked him. He uh, he had everything going for him. He had money. Um, he had uh, vigor, youth. He, um, at a time when you know, Prime Minister King had been around way too long already, and yet he's never able to. Yeah, he's never able to put together the platform that that would bring him any kind of power so so even so he has everything he needs except ideas and when when the whole thing this what he what he called the leadership league in the in the early months of 1939 again you know history and, and george mccullough have an interesting relationship uh it, it ends in, a, in, a, in just a puff of smoke it just it just goes away and um it, the, the, the little puff of, of political smoke is swept away by the royal tour of, of May 1939, where McCullough's horse won the king's plate, and George VI presented McCullough with the gold guineas, and then McCullough's mother dies. And, uh, of course, McCullough doesn't handle that very well and breaks down, and then the war starts. So that's it. And politically, uh, it's over. And when, when, he, when he does get involved in national politics again in a big way, He's supporting George Drew, who's a man in many ways like him, but this guy just has like political loser um, written on, on him so many ways. And um, Drew Drew was had had no scruples. Drew was not above using the Ontario Provincial Police to uh, to spy on his opponents and then leak the material to the Globe and Mail. Stuff that is still not open under Library and Archives Canada rules after all these years. Uh, wow. Stuff from the around the, of the Second World War, we still can't see George Drew's papers on on what they called reliable exterminators. That was the that was the, the their uh, their intelligence gathering and leaking system through the OPP. And and the irony of the whole thing is that in the end, uh, Drew marries McCullough's widow. Wow, yeah, that's interesting. And they burn and they burn his papers, which made me for me as a historian. I'm like, oh my God, thanks, buddy. Thanks for, yeah. thanks for that. I appreciate it. That is a big kick for every one of us historians when you hear of that going on. Um, you know, the other thing that I was interested about is you referenced Toronto and this sort of very interesting world during McCullough's lifetime of Toronto. It seems like a very different Toronto from today. I don't know if you agree with that because I don't spend a lot of time in yeah. Toronto, but maybe you could I, give, give the listeners a sense of this Toronto that you sort of highlight. Yeah, anytime in Toronto is too much time in Toronto, I always figure. My earliest memories of Toronto are from about 10 years after McCullough's death. Uh, so I have this idea of, of, I have this mental image of Toronto that I can walk you through through the eyes of a four or five-year-old um, of a gr grimy, cold, dirt-covered city of low-rise, ugly buildings. The city that McCullough lived in was uh, was a city of slaughterhouses where a lot of the city did stink. I remember that as a child, uh, being able to smell these gigantic stockyards and slaughterhouses. Um, it's a city of really no culture um, with affectations of, of British culture sort of uh, veneered on, but um, 
and and this is where McCullough gets into the stuff with the show horses and the race horses and the king's plate and um and that sort of thing so so it was a, a really a small town if, if you could think of a of a grimy little small town say Hamilton now that was Toronto then um except mm. with a lot more animals and um and here here were the, these newspaper magnets and and they had a power that you know we talked we, we mentioned um Elon Musk but Musk doesn't have anywhere near the power per capita um, that a guy like McCullough or somebody like uh, Joseph Atkinson of the of the Toronto Star had uh, I mean it's everybody I mean and, and I'm not using this as a sort of a, a, a an empty blanket term any family anybody who had a, a few cents bought a paper every day and most families bought every paper every day so they would get the globe and mail in the morning and they would get the telegram and the toronto start night they can change the environment they can literally change the political environment um but by using their front pages and their editorial pages um so it's it's kind of a it's it's a very white place uh, it's a place secret it's a guy like mccullough who has you know who could, could have stood up and said look um mental illness is a serious thing i didn't i didn't deserve this i didn't um I didn't cause this thing to happen to me. Uh, I am uh, burdened with something that I have to deal with. And, 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 you know, he, he believed he couldn't, and he was probably right. Couldn't get up and say this to the world because they would have basically shut him down or locked him up. Right. Right. Um, it was a place where they would put you away. Um, people put away relatives who were, who who had mental illness or who were any kind of had any kind of deviation from the norm and the norm in Toronto was extremely um, narrow and very rigidly enforced. Um, when you talked about McCullough, you mentioned number one, he was kind of written out of Canadian history, which is why your book is so fascinating. And number two, maybe you could expand on why his story is significant for Canadian history as a historian yourself. The first, the reason why he was written out of Canadian history is because he killed himself. I, I, I mean, that's that's just the starting point. Um, it was it was in a lot of people's interest to just forget George McCullough. Okay, and. Um, Another reason he's written out of Canadian history is because there was so little to work with as a historian. So I came across, I was doing my PhD thesis on the wartime censorship system in Canada. And his name kept coming up. I got to find something about him. I'm going to have to throw a few lines in my, my thesis about this guy because he's, he's fighting with the censors over this and he's fighting with the censors over that. And they're writing memos about him. And yet he's just, he's just this empty space in Canadian history. He, he fills space, but but there's nothing there about him. Um, and uh, so there was one one paper written about him uh, by John Saywell, who's a prophet, the um, uh, uh, who was a prophet at York University and a thesis supervisor of, of a mentor of mine. And so I was able to connect with Saywell when he was still alive, fortunately. And um, he said he'd had some of McCullough's papers, but gave them back to Mrs. McCullough. So off to the fires they went, right. and um, so I I thought I would like to do a book on him. I was really intrigued and in, about aspects of his life, which 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 crosses into why should we know about him? So I went and found all kinds of these low print run autobiographies of journalists and biographies of journalists, and just, just take a piece about McCullough here and a piece there. I went back into the, the 
Library and Archives Canada found anybody who I thought McCall would have written to so that we I was able to get letters he'd written and letters that were sent to him so I could actually sort of rebuild his papers. Um, you know, that took me to weird places like the, the House of Lords because Beaverbrook had had a correspondence with McCullough. And then when McCullough died, um, Beaverbrook had correspondence with people about McCullough's death, um, oh, wow. which left one of the really great quotes in the book about the, the founder of the Financial Times, who was a right-hand man to Churchill through the war, saying that, you know, this, the death was probably, you know, a relief for George McCullough. And, um, oh. and, and, and I, all the time I'm, I'm sort of poking around on this project as I was doing other stuff, as in making a living, <laughs> I could see uh, the importance of him for several things. One was his media power, which, um, you know, is always something that's worth discussing. And, and, and um, we see it evolving, but we're presidents or um or, or Zuckerberg's or Elon Musk's or whatever the hell's going to come next. Um, so, so that was important to me. And, and, and seeing the role of, of media and, and its interconnection with political power in Canada is always fascinating to me. And, and then um, as populism began to assert itself and right-wing populism, I saw how, um, how, his, how McCullough's attempt to put together a, a populist political movement just before the war was really germane to what's going on now. So, so with the same thing, you know, the people who, who are asking questions, who are, who are criticizing heavily, who are basically rage farming, which is what McCullough was doing because they have these pages and every, every, every week they'd have these leadership league pages that were just, they were rage farming written by staffers who wouldn't even have their bylines on the, on, on these articles. Um, just whipping up people to, to send out these coupons and listen to McCullough, you know, barn burner speeches, but, but like most populists, not offering anything, just saying, you know, give me power, give me power. And I will, I, I have the solution. Like, I really can't tell you what it is. Um, it, but it really does involve me having power. And right. um, I think that's, rather rather pertinent these days yes uh, people using pertinent. media power to, to whip to rage farm and propel themselves into power um it, you know there were there were already politicians doing that he was trying to do it at the federal level and, and he should be seen in the context of the father Coughlin's and the the townsend guy in the states and huey long and people like that um because that was there were there was and Hitler and Mussolini because mm -hmm. there was this need in the depression for easy answers to really complicated questions. Right. And um, so if you know, you're, you're listening to George McCullough in say March or April of 1939, you have no idea that, that this depression is, is going to be over um, in, in, in a year. Um, right. And and that you know you're not listening to that you, you you don't know that you're not listening to the guy um, who can go into office and who can fix things over the next few years or whatever and get the country back on its feet. He harnessed this just as this there's a sort of funk in our society now and 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 polarization it, that was all there in the in the 30s. Right. I mean history doesn't repeat but it does rhyme as somebody says. Yes. I forget I don't know who I stole that from, um, but I think it really works. And um, and so if it, if 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 the environment rhymes, then maybe we should look at some of the players and see if they rhyme. Like the other books I've written, the book is is about McCullough, as I do air quotes, but it's really about the world. 
I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.